Thank you, choir. I invite you to return with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark during our morning services, and today we find ourselves in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. There can really be no portion of Scripture that is more precious to the believer than a study of any one of the four Gospels, because in that study, we get to learn about the supremacy, sufficiency, and even saviorhood of our Savior. We find ourselves in Mark's Gospel again this morning, Mark chapter 4. In a moment, we'll be reading verses 21 through 25, which is in the midst of a cluster of parables. If you were with us last week, we looked at verses 1 through 20, which is commonly called the parable of the sower, and we explained as best we could that that's probably not the best description. The best description would be to call it the parable of the soils. The sower stays the same in the entire parable, as does the seed for that manner. But the soil, we see there are four different kinds of soil. So this is the parable of the soils in verses 1 through 20. In verses 21 through 25, the verses we're about to read gives us another parable. This is commonly called, correctly so this time, the parable of the lamp. Now I had thought initially at the end of our study of the parable of the soils, it would be possible to go on down into the last chap- verses of this chapter in one bite-sized chunk. But when I began to study it, I realized that we need to maybe come at this from a different and slower pace. So we're going to be in just the parable of the lamp this morning, and next week we'll actually do the sermon I had prepared for this Sunday. Next week I had to prepare a different one for this particular Sunday. It's coming from Mark chapter 4, beginning then in verse 21. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And he said unto them, Jesus again is still talking, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? Though there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath to him it shall be given, and he that hath not... From him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Now, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be those who are dutifully bound to the truth. In fact, the very word disciple means one who is a learner. And specifically, a disciple of Christ is one who is a learner of the truth. That is what a disciple is. He or she is one who traffics in the truth. A disciple was one who is a listener to the truth, learning the truth, living the truth. But what is the truth? Well, answer, truth is that which is perfectly conformed to the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. That's what truth is. Truth is that which conforms to the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. That is to say that truth is the self-revelation and self-expression of God himself. We could put it a different way. What is truth? We could just say, God is truth. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God is defined as the God of truth. When we come over to the New Testament, we find Jesus say things that would have shocked his very familiar with the Old Testament listeners when he said to them, I am the truth. What is he saying to them at that statement? He is saying, I am God, but he is also saying, I am truth. Therefore, truth is never changing because God is never changing and God is truth. Truth is objective, not relative, because all truth is measured and determined by God and not by our shifting times. 
Let me put it to you this way. Truth is reality. And everything that is not of the truth has no reality whatsoever. Truth is the way things really are, both in eternity, both now and forever, both in heaven and on earth, concerning every area of life. The truth is what disciples then are all about. And I give that introduction to you because our culture looks to define, or we could say redefine, truth, which you cannot do since truth is tied to eternity, tied to God himself. Truth does not, has not, and never will change. Concerning what it is to be a disciple, then, Jesus would say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Every true disciple is one who has come, then, to embrace truth and is growing in truth, and it is the truth that sets them free from the course of the world who would fight against that truth. We have no time, then, for opinions in this church. We are rooted and grounded in truth because we are gathered as disciples, and disciples are gathered as truth seekers. Now, that is exactly what motivates Christ. And it should motivate us as well. We should pay attention to what we listen and as we listen to what we listen to. This is what motivates Christ's prayer in John 17 when he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Where is that truth? Your word is truth. Sanctification, which is a growth in God and to his holy purposes, is brought about in our lives by the truth. And as, only as we grow in the truth are we enabled to grow in godliness. In fact, we cannot even worship God apart from truth. Jesus would say this in John's Gospel, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is what our primary ministry of this church is, and every true New Testament church ought to be. It is first and foremost to uphold the truth. I'm not engaging with you in Caleb's opinions of the text or your debate about the text. We are looking at the text. What does the text say? And that's what we say the text says. This is the truth. This ought to be the one place in town, the church is, where you can gather and hear truth. That's what you should know when you come to church. In fact, Timothy is told by Paul, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That is what we are. We are those who uphold the truth. We are not to entertain here. We are to educate here in the truth. And that's what Jesus is driving at in Mark 4. Everything in these parables revolves around truth. Let me review it to you again. These are parables about the truth. Parable number one, the parable of the soils, the focus is upon the sowing of the truth into the hearts and lives of people. That's the focus. And the parable we're looking at now, parable number two, the focus is upon the ministry of that same truth. And yet, as we mentioned last week, it is a sobering thought to realize this truth about truth. We can hear the truth, real truth, and still have it have no effect on our lives at all. It is possible to listen to the scattered seed of truth and have that seed not register or not take root. It is possible. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us why that is. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, 
But the word they heard, this truth, did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. What we discover here is a law that is informed by truth. Alistair Begg calls this law the law of consecutive spiritual assimilation. That's kind of a long word, but he's from Ireland, so he can make it sound long. You could put it a different way, and I will. The law of progressive spiritual out-atrophy. That's still a mouthful. Put it simply. When we listen and learn the truth, our capacity to learn the same truth increases. The more we listen and learn and take in the truth, the more our capacity to listen and learn increases as it abounds in that truth. But when we listen and don't learn, our capacity dwindles and may even disappear. Now this becomes a sobering warning as we start this passage. And the warning is this, not only pay attention as you listen, but how you handle the truth that is presented to you will have and does have eternal consequences. The exhortation of this passage, the root of these verses, is found in verse 23 and on into the beginning of verse 24. When Jesus says this, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what you hear. The exhortation is both preceded, that exhortation, is both preceded and followed by exhortation, or if you will, E-I-A. Exhortation, or I-E-A, rather. Instruction, exhortation, and then in another instruction. And it's all revolved around this truth. And instruction number one concerning this truth is found in verses 21 and 22 of this passage. Again, let me just say what is being said, and then we'll look at it in detail. The parables Jesus is teaching us were not a means to obscure the truth concerning the kingdom of God. Instead, They were a means Jesus used to cause the listener to see himself in the illustration. Part of the goal of the preacher is is to make, rather, the connection when the listener has not made that connection for himself. A parable lays an illustration down next to the truth so that you will see the truth and yourself illustrated in the parable. For example, if you're a student of God's word, there's a famous Old Testament example of a parable. Nathan the prophet, he uses a similar experience. In parabolic form, he appears before King David, who has behaved wrongly. And he tells King David about this story of a sheep that was cared for greatly by the shepherd. In fact, this was the shepherd's favorite sheep. And a rich person came by and said, I want that sheep for myself. Kill it, slaughter it, that I might eat it. And David is enraged by that story, if you remember. He is ticked off. And he actually wants that man's head. He is that mad. To which Nathan the prophet points his finger and says, You are the man. The illustration was, What you did with Bathsheba is wrong. You are the man. Now what we're discovering is that Jesus has been using these parables as a kind of filter. Some will hear this story and find that it's a really good story, like Aesop's fables. But others will see this story and it will see and they will be able to see themselves in that story. You are the man. Hence the distinction we are going to see between those who just have ears 
and those who have ears to hear. There is a difference. And so Jesus asks a question as he begins this story that's really intended to make his listeners smile. The big debate you often hear is whether or not Jesus had humor. I think it's hard to deny that Jesus definitely had humor in many of his statements. There was an undertone of humor, even sarcasm. And in this one, I think Jesus would have anticipated that his listeners would have cracked a small smile as he asked this question. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Even children would say, you don't light candles to put them under baskets or under beds. If your bedroom were dark and you were to get a lamp only to hide it under something, we would think there's something wrong with you. Maybe you're trying to burn your house down. That would be very silly. It would be strange. Of course, you light your candle to put it on a lampstand. Now, this is a parable as well. It's a short one, but it's still a parable. The parables were more than simply the extensive statements of Jesus, but they were also these little anecdotal statements. And here, Jesus uses a pithy statement in order to make a point. This pithy statement certainly elicited a smile or perhaps even a chuckle. But like a good teacher, Jesus wove in this kind of sarcastic comment to make an explanation or to give an explanation that's intended to make you think. Jesus gives an explanation to make you think. This certainly is better than making you grimace, right? What then does Jesus want us to think about? Answer, Jesus wants us to think about the implication of that little smile that you just had. For nothing is hidden, he said, except it to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, what is this lamp? Well, Jesus is ultimately the lamp that lights our path, and this is his word. Jesus hasn't come as a lamp to be hidden under a bed. Jesus hasn't come as a light to be cloaked in darkness. And people think for a moment that in his use of parables that he is putting blankets over his lamps, they are mistaken. Jesus is pointing out that it would be wrong to conclude that Jesus has been brought to earth, the kingdom of God is near in the purpose of Jesus, or in the plan of Jesus, and this kingdom of God is near only to be concealed. That would be wrong to conclude. And the contrast in this instruction is the contrast between the present, what they see now, and the future. What the listeners saw of God's kingdom right now didn't fit their expectations. The Jewish people had an understanding that when Messiah came, he would establish a kingdom. They brought to that understanding all kinds of ideas, which would now have confused them as they looked at Jesus. They didn't see him riding on a great white steed, wearing some pristine armor, and fighting off the Romans. Instead, they saw him as a simple carpenter from Bethlehem, and that would have confused them at the present. But what what the listeners heard was speaking of a future kingdom. This parabolic form was veiled, not in order that people would not get it, but that in order when they do get it, they would really understand it. Every time we listen to the Bible read, we need to realize that what was secret was then revealed to his disciples. And only by faith, then and now, would anybody recognize the Son of God in this carpenter from Nazareth. He's the light. Boy, at first blush, that doesn't look like much of a kingdom but he's the light. If you can slip on your pair of first century sandals and think back for a moment, 
How were they going to come to the conclusion, any of this crowd, that Jesus is the Son of God? What about him screamed Messiah? Well, the truth is, you can't come to that conclusion except by faith. How could someone standing there on Calvary one day conclude that the one dying on the cross and disfigured is actually the Messiah in all of his fullness? How could you come to that conclusion? Answer, only by faith. And today when Jesus is presented in our 21st century in all the philosophical and cultural milieu which essentially embraces that no one can claim objective truth, how can Jesus be presented and then embraced as truth? Answer, only by faith. We read this in the Bible, and it says in 1 Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This does not fit with contemporary notions. How could a person ever come to believe and trust in that Jesus? Answer, only by faith. And we see this Sunday by Sunday as we look at various responses to the read and preached word. Folks sit side by side and hear the same passages, process the same information, but have completely different responses. How can that be? Well, we can hear the truth and still not have it impact our lives. Islam today has a place for Jesus. One of their prophets is Jesus. But it is a blasphemy to the Muslim mind that a prophet would be hanged on a cross. And yet this is the absolute center of Christianity. This is not a marginal discussion. This is a radical distinction. Embrace this, or you embrace your doom. One day the sower will come as the harvester. And how you handle this truth will have eternal consequences. So pay attention as you listen. But there's a clear exhortation. There's a clear command. There's something that that instruction is meant to drive you to. And the exhortation of this passage in verses 23 through 24a emerged from the instruction. Just as I had two sub-points under instruction number one, I have two under this exhortation. And what we understand is that truth beckons you to use your ears. Notice what he says in verse 23. If any man has ears to hear, what is he supposed to do with them? Let him hear. By the way, Jesus has already said this in verse 9. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He's repeating this. Ask any growing child if they have ears, and they will be able to point to them. But the real question is whether or not those ears are decorations or they are meant to accomplish something. Listen, I am not a a school teacher, though I have taught children, but I know, because I have teachers, that every good school teacher, somewhere along the line, is going to say to their classroom, use your ears, right? What does she mean? That you don't have them? No. She's not saying, put on your literal ears. They're already there. She's talking about processing that information so that you are actually thinking about it. So what Jesus is saying here, he's not simply saying listen, is he? He's not just simply saying hear. Jesus is saying hear in a certain way, is what he's saying. This is a solemn call to perceive the significance of what has been veiled in the parable. This is a solemn call to lay hold by faith onto what Jesus is conveying in his teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven. 
And this is what he's already said back in chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is what Jesus did and has been teaching everywhere he goes. It's almost like you could say if there was a phrase that he began every, every gathering with, this was his phrase. And now he's saying, listen, ponder what I am telling you. This is the person who says, Jesus, you have come to be king, be my king. That's using your ears to hear. This is more significant in the parables when it's conveyed even on the surface. The benefit of the instruction of Jesus through parables is to get you to process this. God does not lead you to salvation by bypassing the central uh, processing units which reside between your ears, your head. Some would say, well, it just needs to sink to your hearts. And I understand what they're saying, but the truth of the matter is that there's more acknowledgement from Jesus' teaching to think. That's what he wants you to do. Now, in our culture, we think of thinking like heart, and I understand that. But Jesus wants you to process something. And this truth beckons you to use your ears, and this truth beckons you to pay attention. Notice what it now says in verse 24. Take heed what you hear. The ESV just says, pay attention. I actually like the NIV here. It says, consider carefully. When Luke includes this section of this parable, Luke puts it this way. Take care then how you hear. That certainly advances the ball a little bit more. Don't just allow this to wash over you. Pay attention. And the reason that this is so important to pay attention to is not because one who tells you about it is important. It is important because in this instance Jesus is the teacher, but beyond that there's a point. After the significance of, is because the Bible, it really it becomes down to the Bible's truth itself. That's what we say as pastors. Make sure you are reading the Bible for yourself. Test what you are reading and hearing preached with the Word of God. You must use the Bible as the judge of all teachings and all sermons and all books that you hear. You must pay attention to God's Word because God's Word is God's appointed means by men, whereby rather men and women learn the truth of the Gospel. You want to hear God preach today? Go into your bathroom, open your Bible, and read the Bible out loud to yourself. Amen. That's where the Word is. And so it is when you read your Bible, you find that it contains, for example, even warnings. Hebrews would say, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Jesus says in John 8 to his followers, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The Bible is more than just comforting promises that you can placate yourself in difficult circumstances. The Bible is full of warnings. Don't go there. So it behooves us always to consider the Bible and believe it thoroughly and practice it diligently. If we had time, that's a whole other sermon right there. But the truth is, and it's a sobering one, that the same two people can sit under warnings and one can say, I don't want that, I'm coming to you, King Jesus. 
And other can even perhaps paper it over spiritually and say, I just need to pray about it, I'll think about it later. It's no wonder Jesus, when he talks to Nicodemus by night, has an urgency in his tone, when he literally says, you just need to do this, you must be born again. How you handle the truth has eternal consequences. But like pieces of a bread, between the meat of the exhortation, Jesus gives another instruction. And we come to the second instruction in this short passage, found at the end of verse 24, coming down to verse 25. And as I did in all the other points, I've got two sub-points for you. And what Jesus says first is, what you put out will be brought back. Jesus advances this thought. Here's what he says in verse 24. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall be more given. In other words, Jesus is saying that as we abound in all that God provides for us, a, a means so that we may actually abound in more in return. Do you understand what that means? God has appointed means by which he accomplishes his purpose. God has appointed means in your life that are not meant to be a secret. They're not meant to be some kind of thing that you have to be initiated into. There are means that you can follow by which he plans to accomplish his purposes in your life. There's, of course, the primary means of salvation in Christ. But there are subsidiary means of salvation is the word of God, which points Jesus, people to Jesus. Therefore, God has appointed that the means of his grace will be brought to bear upon your life, and as they are, as more of these means are brought to bear on your life, you will find yourself abounding in truth. What are these means? Well, this is why he gave us communion. That's a means. So that we will not forget what happened on the cross. That's what he wants of us. That's actually why he gave us suffering. So that we not begin to take life as if it's a walk in a park or a bowl of cherries. He gave us suffering. That's why he gave us Christian fellowship. That we won't think for even one moment that we can do this by ourselves. That's why he gave us prayer. So that we may be pressed to speak earnestly to the God who listens. That's why he gave you his Bible. So that you may better know about God. This is our means whereby God has chosen to accomplish his purpose in our lives. And if our response to those means is just superficial and casual, it will prove to be of no ultimate value. Realize there are two ways to read an instruction manual. You've done this. You get a piece of Ikea furniture, and immediately your heart sinks because you really don't want to do that, right? Uh, but, But your experience tells you that you probably should at least give some attention to the instruction manual, so you glance at it, at least the first couple pages. And then you get into the actual construction of a three-legged stool, which should just be simple. And there's like some extra piece that's just hanging out there, and you're like, but I read it. But in reality, you didn't really read it, right? You glanced at it. It wasn't very valuable to you if you're now confused. I use that illustration because there are very, really, two ways that I could come to any one of those memes. I I could come to the Word of God and read it, but it won't be all that valuable to me in one sense if I don't really dwell on it. I I could gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday, and leave, I guess, refreshed, but not, 
not in the realest of senses if I've never actually exercised my spiritual gift with my brethren on that particular gathering. I could come to communion a little bit later and know exactly what's going on, but not actually abound in what God is doing. And what Jesus says is that as you pour in, it will abound more. Is this not the same revival promise of the book of James? Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. What you put out will be brought back. And what you put up will be brought back. This brings us to the final but very important instruction in verse 25. For to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And we're back again to the assimilation or atrophy picture. You could actually call this point, use it or lose it. I thought for a very brief moment about bringing a 25-pound weight up here as a closing illustration. And then I thought for a moment, I've been sick for the last few weeks, and it would be rather embarrassing if I couldn't pick up that 25-pound weight. <laughs> but you're a bright group. You don't need visual aids. But as in the physical realm, so in the spiritual realm. That's what Jesus is saying. If you've never exercised your physical arms, you'll be looking or walking around like a human pipe cleaner. It's just not going to do much for you. You say, yes, Caleb, we see that every day when you preach. I get it. I get it. But if you never exercise your spiritual muscles, you'll be weak. There's a warning and a promise woven into that, isn't there? The warning, here we discover why it is that so many derive such little benefit from the hearing of the word of God. It's because they sit under the gospel message and regard it as an exercise that they don't want to pick up that weight. And they walk out the door Sunday after Sunday, never changed and never growing. They think they'll be different. But just the mere presence of being here doesn't do anything for them. It'd be like walking into a gym and just looking at the weights. Yeah, they're cool. But weights don't build muscle by osmosis. They just don't. But there is a promise. And the promise is that whoever has worked out will be given more. Our capacity to receive will be increasing. Lord Jesus, you could say, speak to me through your Bible in a way that I fully understand. And as you do, the capacity to receive will increase. But what's this about? Use it or lose it. I thought we plainly taught that you can't lose your salvation. Well, the story is plainly that you use your salvation. God does not keep us apart from the means of grace. He keeps us tied to the means of grace. The story, the story of this parable is clearly connected to the parable of the soils. What he's saying is, those who don't use it and thereby have no growth are one of the other three forms of soil. There was no root. So don't go to church and cherish to yourself some silly notion that you may go as you please and do as you want and pay scant attention to the Bible. That's silly. Don't go about thinking that you're okay if you don't believe the Bible thoroughly. You either believe all of it or you believe none of it. Don't be so naive to presume that it'll just be in the finish line that God will let or not say you're actually saved. Don't be so naive. Don't do that and somehow convince yourself that all is well with your soul if it's not. 
Because we can hear the truth, we really can, and have it have no effect on our lives whatsoever. Jesus did not insist upon this truth because this truth was irrelevant. Jesus insisted upon the use of this truth because truth is vital. God saves us through this truth, and by this truth, he grows us. God keeps us through this truth, and by this truth, he grows us. God doesn't save us or keep us apart from this truth. And for those who'd say, well, I, you know, I filled out a cool VBS card, and mom and dad said I was saved back in the day, it has nothing at all to do with saying the right kind of prayer. It's what you believe in your heart. And that's a challenging warning. Because there may be some in this room who have loved ones who claim to be saved, haven't darkened the door of a church in years, not just this one, anyone. You should be burdened for their soul. Those that do not cling to the means of grace that God has so clearly given to us cannot rightly say they even have grace. This is what this parable is saying. And it's not just about church either, friend. Lest you and I think that because we got dressed up this morning, and it wasn't as hard to get out of bed because you got an extra hour of sleep anyways, (laughs) and we're good because we came to church, and we now exercise the means of grace, lest we be so naive to think that, let me encourage you by letting you know that is not the only means of grace. You can still come to church and not be saved. Are you in God's word? Not just on Sunday, but the rest of the week, because Christianity isn't a Sunday thing, right? It's all the time. Are you in communication with your Heavenly Father through prayer because He wants you to talk to Him? If there's no spark in your life, get that right, right now. You say, Pastor Caleb, do you know if I'm saved? Nope, I don't. (laughs) That's between you and God. But you say, what if I'm doubting? I'll tell you what you do if you're doubting. Don't doubt. Run to God. God also did not save you to put you in a two-pronged heart or, or one side of the fence and then the other. And you wrestle at night thinking, if I died right now, I'm not sure if I go to heaven. That's not what God wanted you to have. God saved you to give life, to give you life, and to give it to you abundantly. So if you're doubting, listen to what Jesus says. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed to what you hear. How you handle the truth will have eternal consequences. Because ultimately, as our title of our series suggests, this is not my story. This is his story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the instruction and exhortation that has been given to us from this passage. Lord, as a church family, we are now preparing our hearts for communion. And this message certainly ties in line with what God would have us to do, to be carefully examining ourselves, and so much the more as we see the day approaching, gathering with other believers, that we would remember what you have done for us on the cross. But Lord, this faith is not a throwaway to us. It ought to be the very central part of our being and practice and lifestyle. Lord, we're thankful that you can use illustrations to make it very clear that saved people weren't just saved to be put under a bed or under a bushel. They were saved to be bright lights for a God who lit them. 
Lord, we pray that if there is any in this room who are unsaved or perhaps they're doubting, that today would be the day of their salvation and they would be assured, perhaps, that you do save. Lord, we're thankful for those who are saved. May we, as a, those who do believe in salvation and our own salvation, be moved, perhaps to tears, to cry out to God to save more souls because the fields are indeed white unto harvest. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand with me? The instruments are going to begin to play. The song is entitled, Search Me, O God. It's certainly our invitation at the end of our message this morning. But also, I pray, would prepare your hearts for communion. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior. See if there be any wicked way in me. Would you prepare your hearts for what we're about to do by partaking in communion together?